Good morning. <clears throat> Hi, I'm Jordan Smith. This is my second time to ever do this. Um, the first time was this morning during the first service. Um, I'm usually the guy in the back playing the bass, which at Norris Ferry was the first time I'd ever done that too. So uh, if you stay here long enough, you may be up here in this seat. Uh, um, anyway, uh, today we're going um, to talk about the new covenant. Um, and when we talk about the new covenant, that is the covenant that we have uh, with God through the blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins through his death and resurrection. Um, over this summer, we've been talking about the word of God, and we've talked about the um, clarity of the word of God. We've talked about the trustworthiness. But over the last few weeks, we've specifically talked about five of the six covenants that we find in our Bible. And five of those six are in the Old Testament. Today, we're going to talk about the last of those, which is the New Covenant. Next week, uh, Tracy is going to start us on our walk through Genesis. Um, uh, but today, um, I want to do a couple of things. One, I want to quickly recap um, those five covenants, simply because it's summertime, uh, if I ask for a show of hands of who's been here or listened to all the sermons on all the covenants, it, uh, it might not look good for us. So we're going to recap that, talk about, remind ourselves what a covenant is, and then we're going to camp out for a few minutes um, on that. So uh, we define, um, like Grudem does, a covenant as an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of that relationship, okay? And, and, and God has done this a bunch of times, but we, we clearly have these six. So let's recap real quick. The first covenant that we find in our scripture is the covenant that God made with Adam. Um, Adam and Eve were living in the garden. God was providing for all of their needs, everything that they needed. They had perfect, unhindered uh, relationship, fellowship, communication with their God. Um, and all they had to do was obey the one rule, which was not eat from uh, the tree, uh, uh, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which we know they did. Uh, and then the second covenant we have is the covenant with Noah. After God rescues Noah and his family from the great flood, uh, God makes a promise, makes a covenant, that he will never again wipe out all of mankind and that he will never again wipe out all that he has created, all of his creation. Then we get to the covenant with Abraham, uh, uh, where, where God, despite Abraham and Sarah's old age, promises that they were going to have many descendants, uh, as many as the stars in the heavens, uh, and that one day one of those descendants is going to, God's going to use to bless all of mankind. Now, Abraham didn't know what that meant. We do. On the side of Jesus, we know what that means. Um, and then he also, the last part of that was that God was going to give Abraham and his family an inheritance. Um, of land that would be theirs, that they could call their own. Then we have the covenant with Moses. God uh, rescues uh, the Israelites out of the land of Egypt, and uh, God uses Moses to give the Israelites his law, telling them the things they should or shouldn't do um, to please God, to be blessed. In that law, there was a sacrificial system that was set up uh, that would allow for the covering of the people's sins, then, uh, last week, Jared talked about the Davidic covenant, the covenant uh, that we see in David, where God makes a promise that one day a descendant of David will be established as king, um, and he will be like a king that has never existed before, and his kingdom will last forever. Um, 
again, at the time, uh, all these covenants were made and God was uh, speaking through someone, through a vision, through one of his prophets, through uh, one of his men. Uh, they didn't know exactly how all these things were going to work out. And they, in their lifetime, they saw pieces of these covenants um, come together in fulfillment of those. Uh, but not, none of that wraps up completely and cleanly until we get to Jesus, which will be part of what we talk about today. So let me pray for us, um, pray for me, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll walk through this together. Father, thank you for this morning and um, the chance to be together. Thank you for um, your word that we're going to look at together, Father, and um, the good, good promises that we find there, the hope that we find there. Um, I pray this morning, Father, uh, for everyone in this room. I pray for myself that um, your word, um, that it sinks deep in our hearts this morning, maybe deeper than it's ever sank before, uh, that we, as we better understand, Father, through Jesus, what you've done for us, that that would change our lives. And if there's anyone in the room, Father, who doesn't know you, that you um, would work in their hearts through your Holy Spirit, um, that your, your truth would be communicated clearly, um, and that you would do the things that you're about, which are, are, are changing our lives. We ask and we pray these things in your name. Amen. So, as I mentioned just a second ago, throughout um, the Old Testament, we get these hints of this Messiah, of this Jesus. Uh, again, but we don't, we don't get a real clear picture uh, of, of who that is and how God is going to kind of do the things that he's been promising that he does. But in, in, in Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah um, mentions for the first time this idea of this new covenant, this better covenant. So I'm going to read uh, part of Jeremiah 31 to you here. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So, in Jeremiah here, we get a really clear, we, the first picture, but we get a very clear picture that God is planning to do something new, something different, something better than what he had done in the previous covenants. And that's where we're at this morning. We're talking about the new covenant, the covenant that we have through Jesus. Um, that new covenant through Jesus, just to be very clear, is a covenant uh, that was established through the blood of Jesus that provides us forgiveness of sin and a final reconciliation between us and God. It promises, because that's what covenants do, that for those of us who place our faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, will not perish but have everlasting life. Um, this is the new. This is the better covenant, as Scripture puts it. We have fulfillment. We have conclusion, confirmation, final realization, however you want to put it, of what God has been laying out through the whole story in the Bible all the way back since, since Genesis. And God, in his extraordinary love for us, and his just immeasurable, un, unknowable, understandable sovereignty, did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, right? 
which was once and for all, restore us, a sinful and broken people, into right relationship with a holy and righteous God. That's the new covenant, okay? So if you get nothing else this morning, you understand this new covenant. Uh, So now we know that, most of us in this room, right? That's why most of you are here, is because you believe and trusted Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And that you believe that through faith in Jesus that you can be a son or daughter of, uh, of, of, of God. But today, as we kind of get into Hebrews, because that's where we're going to camp out for a minute, I hope to kind of show you that in this new covenant, in Jesus, that we have a, a better priest, that we have a better sacrifice and a greater blessing. Uh, so if you like to take notes and you like the three points, those are your three points. We have a better priest, a better sacrifice, and a greater blessing in Christ. Um, if we had time, which I pitched to, to Tracy and he didn't go for, which was me just sitting down and reading the book of Hebrews to you, um, uh, if we had time, there, there is some incredible news for us in that. Uh, but it, we're, we're going to narrow it down this morning. In, in Hebrews 8, we, we have the writer of Hebrews quoting Jeremiah 31, which I just read a minute, a minute ago, back to us. Um, and the reason he's doing that is to make sure that it's not lost that what Jeremiah the prophet a long time ago was promising, or that God was promising through Jeremiah a long time ago, that that has been fulfilled in Jesus, okay? That here's the fulfillment. It is in Jesus. Let there be no confusion. So in Hebrews 9, we get a a bit of a further explanation of exactly what Christ has accomplished through his death and, and how he's a better priest. So let's read together Hebrews 9, 11 through 15. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made by hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised and eternal inheritance, since a death occurred that redeemed them from the uh, transgressions committed under the first covenant. So here we see Christ as the better priest, and we start to get into Christ as the better sacrifice. Um, but to really understand the significance of that, we, we do have to go back to our Old Testament. Um, so back in the covenant with Moses, um, God um, created this, uh, this system of sacrifice to cover the sins of the people of Israel. And in that, they assigned a priest um, who were from the tribe of Levi that would uh, go and make a sacrifice that covered everybody. But before they could do that, they had to make a sacrifice to cover their own sins because they were a sinner just like you and I. Once they did that, then the priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. Um, So inside the temple of God, there was this back room, this inner chamber that was called the Holy of Holies, and that's where the very presence of God dwelt with the people of Israel. And This priest had to be washed clean so he could go in there and then in the very presence of God offer the sacrifice so that everybody's sins could be covered. 
Here in Hebrews 9, we have Jesus referred to as the high priest and that he went before the presence of God and offered his own blood to cover our sins, his perfect blood um, to remove all of our sins once and for all as far as this east is from west, to remember our sin no more. Remember, that's exactly what Jeremiah 31 said. This, was, this language here is there's a finality of what God is doing through this new covenant. It's not a temporary holding off the wrath of God that we saw in some of these old systems. We have God doing something incredible here. Now, if we really want to understand, again, even more about how Christ is the perfect sacrifice, we go back to Genesis, uh, which y'all are used to because Tracy's the pastor here. Um, as we talked about a few weeks ago, we talked about the covenant with Abraham. And in Genesis 15, um, God comes to Abraham and makes some really outlandish, incredible promises. Abraham's old, Sarah's old, Sarah's barren. They don't have any children. And God says that they're going to have lots of descendants, so many you can't count, um, and that they're going to bless the whole world through that. And Mo, uh, Abraham essentially says, well, how do I know you're going to be good on your promise? Um, how do I know you're going to do what you're going to do? So God says, well, what I want you to do is slaughter these animals, and he gives them a very specific list of what he needs to do, and lay out two rows with the carcasses, the bodies of those animals, those slaughtered animals. Now, Abraham, unlike us, who live in 2018, would have understood what God was doing here. This is how covenants were made. They were done through blood. Um, when a king or a lord wanted to make a covenant with one of his servants or one of his people, the same thing would happen. They would slaughter animals. They would lay them out in two rows. And then that servant would walk between those two rows of animals and recite the covenant or the promise, the commitment that he was making to that king or that lord, his allegiance. And the idea was that if he, the servant, broke that covenant, that the curse that was on these animals, death, that the same would happen to him. Okay? That death would fall on that servant for breaking that covenant. But... If we remember back to Genesis 15, what happened? Anybody remember? The very presence of God passed between the rows of the dead animals. Now, if you just read it, if you're just reading your Bible and you get to Genesis 15 and you read it, it, it you can almost miss it. But if you understand what Abraham would have understood of the, the weight of making this type of covenant... And then him waiting, probably, for God to call him to walk between, but then God doesn't. God does it? That is a what kind of moment. Because God, essentially what he's saying is, if this covenant breaks, and I'm not going to break it because I'm a perfect God, but if you break it, then I'm on the hook for the curse. The curse, instead of falling on Abraham, it's going to fall on God. Now, Abraham can't begin to understand what that means, Right? But what does that sound like? It sounds like Jesus on the cross, doesn't it? That's exactly what God did. As outlandish as that is, that's exactly what happened. He died the perfect death, a holy God's death, bearing our sins with him so that a new covenant could be established, one that is perfect and that is eternal, a covenant that brings us into a right relationship with God, but not just as his people, but as adopted sons and daughters who are now co-heirs with, with Christ Jesus. That's incredible news. And I, and I know we've all heard that at some point or another, but to think back all the way back to Genesis, the first book in our Bibles, not too far after Adam and Eve, 
We have God making this promise that hinges on the person of Jesus Christ without us knowing who Jesus is. Abraham doesn't understand. Jesus is the linchpin. All, if we go back, and we don't have time to do it, but if you go back and look at all of those covenants and what God was promising, there, there are these hints about there's this thing, this, this factor, this thing we don't know about yet, and the way that God is going to pull all of these things together. And we know today, through the new covenant, that that person was Jesus. Think about Adam and Eve when they sinned. God makes a promise that one day, Son of Man's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. What does that mean? It means nothing unless you keep reading. And then we see it happen. We see, we see the fulfillment of that, uh, the crushing of the enemy of sin and death through Jesus Christ. Jesus took, think about it this way to simplify it down. Jesus took the curse, which was death, so we could get his blessing. Okay, which was relationship with the Father and eternal life. Let's keep reading. Um, in Hebrews 9, 26 through 28, it says, But as it is, he has appeared once, that's Jesus, once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes to judgment, so Christ has been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. I'm going to read it one more time because it's really, really good here. But as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes to judgment, so Christ has been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. Christ came to sacrifice himself to deal with sin once and for all. And as a consequence of that, when, when we die or when Jesus comes back, it's not going to be to deal with our sin. That's dealt with today. That's the good news. But it's, it's to come back and claim us as his people, as his sons and daughters, as his beautiful bride which he has washed clean and made perfect and beautiful through the blood of his son. That's the good news. It's the better, that's a much better priest. That's a much better sacrifice that unlike the Israelites, we don't have to go back every year and shed more blood and go through this ritual again to try to hold off the wrath of God because we're sinful and broken people who continue to sin, um, but to come and be done with it, to put sin and death to death forever. So what do, what do we do with that? If, if we claim to be in Christ Jesus and we claim that we understand that, what does that mean for us? What is this greater blessing that we get? Well, we see in part what that greater blessing is. We, we get Jesus. We get, we get eternal salvation and relationship with the Father. Well, Hebrews 10 tells us what else. So we'll read Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers... Since we have a confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up in love 
and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the writer of Hebrews basically says, well, here, here's your so what. So again, if you're a big note taker and you're going, what is my application today? Uh, one, because of what Christ has done through the sacrifice, let us draw near to God. Okay? What does that mean? Let's today begin submitting our whole lives to God that we may personally and intimately know the person of Jesus Christ. Two, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. We've got to cling to this truth. Um, if you're like me, um, and my Bible tells me you are, so it's a safe bet, um, this truth eludes us. We forget this. I go to sleep tonight and I wake up tomorrow and have to remind myself of the good news that despite my best efforts, I will never be good enough. Um, despite however I might be up or down on myself, none of that matters because Jesus is my Savior and my King and has, and has made me a co-heir with Christ. We have to remind ourselves of that. We have to remind each other of that because that's hard in this life, which we'll talk about in a minute. Lastly, we must encourage one another. Uh, the words in, in my translation are stir up one another so that we can pursue Christ together in the good deeds, the things that, are, that Jesus is about in his kingdom, um, taking care of one another, taking care of the poor, um, taking care of the widow and the, the, the orphan and the alien, um, loving one another, um, uh, sharing the gospel with one another. Um, and we're to do that until Jesus comes back and establishes his everlasting kingdom. And that's where we are today. We're today waiting on the Lord to return, complete a good work that he's already started. And that was hinted at uh, throughout the Old Testament. Now, um, that's good news, right? That, that today, you, your sin and my sin are dealt with uh, through the blood of Jesus. But the hope that we have for tomorrow is so much, it goes even further, even deeper, even wider than that. And uh, I, don't, I don't feel like we spend a ton of time just in general talking about that and, and reminding each other of the hope that we have one day. Um, when I was little, um, no offense to my parents who are sitting right over here. Uh, when I was little, I thought when Jesus came back that that meant he was going to come back and he was going to take us up to heaven and there would be some hymns probably and there would be some prayer. But that's kind of like as far as I got there. But that's not what our Bibles tell us is going to happen because the news just keeps getting better. It just keeps getting better. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me read you what the, uh, the Apostle John says in Revelations. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Essentially, what we're being told here is that when Jesus comes back, 
and God establishes the new heavens and the new earth, he's going to establish his kingdom here on earth with us as people. We will be in the very presence of Jesus and God. And that all of the things that are so hard, even as born-again believers today about life, are going to be dealt with. I mean, I can live in the truth that my sins are forgiven and that one day I will have eternal life. Um, but tomorrow, I still face, you still face a, a broken world. Um, uh, life is hard uh, for, for all of us, for everyone in this room. You're, our jobs feel like the, there's futility and toil to them so often. Relationships are incredibly difficult with our spouse, with our children, with our, uh, our friends, other family members. Um, our health fails us. There's sickness and disease and, and death. Um, and those are all things, because we are forgiven people living in a broken world, that we still have to deal with tomorrow. But what our Bibles are telling us is that there's hope in the midst of cancer, in the midst of uh, a lost parent, um, that we, we have hope of restoration of all of those things. Um, our, our Bibles tell us that just like Jesus, when he came back from the grave, he had his new body. That our, somehow, we're told, we will, we will be similar to that um, in our resurrected bodies. That all of creation, that's what was hinted back in the covenant with Noah. That God promised that he was going to restore all of his creation. Um, that is incredible hope to us. And, and it's a hope that today we have to remind ourselves of. Um, we have to remind one another of. And we, 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 we don't wait till next Sunday or when community group happens to do that, that it, it, it has to be a hope that in every day that I'm reminding myself uh, of, of what has been done for me, what has been done for you, and what is promised for me one day down the road. Um, and if the deeper that truth sinks, your lives, my life, is going to be changed in ways that I can't even begin to imagine because um, it changes everything. Um, to kind of close today, I, uh, we're going to do something we haven't ever done at Norris Fairs pointed out to me earlier. We're going to talk about unicorns. Um, <laughs> C.S. Lewis, um, as many of you know, uh, was a famous Christian writer, and he wrote a lot of books. Uh, and his most famous thing that he ever wrote was a series for children called The Chronicles of Narnia. Um, uh, and I'm gonna, I, there, there are some things, some parallels, some allegory there that when I read it myself, that something stirs real deep in my heart near my, the, where my, my truth resides that goes, there's something here that gives me hope, gives me goosebumps. There are times I've read it and I've just openly cried. Um, but I, I want to I give us some context. And I just want to read two little passages in closing for us today, Okay. So, for those that haven't read, in Narnia, it's this magical land. There are a bunch of different types of creatures that live there. There are talking animals. Uh, there are a group of children that visit and show up throughout this entire series. And when you get to the last book, it's called The Last Battle. Um, and by the time you get to this book, Aslan, who is the Christ figure, that you, he's a lion that you see throughout this whole series, Aslan's been gone a long time. And, and essentially the whole generation of citizens of Narnia, nobody has seen them with their own eyes in their lifetime. Now they've heard about him. They know he's the king. They know that, he, that Narnia belongs to him. He's the true ruler. But nobody's seen him. Well, 
a donkey, follow me, uh, <laughs> pretends to be Aslan the lion. He dresses up, he puts on a lion skin, and starts pretending to be Aslan returned. And some of the citizens of Narnia believe him. They go, he looks like Aslan. Certainly this must be Aslan. Uh, and the others go, well, he doesn't act the way, he doesn't, the way Aslan should act with the stories I've heard. He's not saying the type of things. He's kind of selfish. Uh, it's just, uh, I, don't, I don't think this is the real Aslan. I've never seen him with my eyes, but this can't be him. Well, this all culminates with a big battle at the end of the book, the last battle. And in the middle of that battle, the true Aslan shows up. And the good side, the true followers of Aslan prevail. And then after that happens, there's this beautiful picture painted by Lewis, uh, the way he writes this, where Aslan calls creation to a close with the mountains being pulled down and the stars in the heavens being pulled down and the seas rolled back. It's really beautiful and it's incredible. Um, but the characters, the true followers of Narnia, including uh, one of the children, Lucy, are sad that this is happening. Lucy's crying and, and says something to the degree of, I'm just really going to miss Narnia. Um, I love the people here. I love the forests and the streams and the oceans and the mountains. And it's sad that it's all going to be gone. And uh, essentially the answer she gets is that all good stories kind of come to an end. Well, then Aslan opens a doorway and he ushers everybody through, all of his true followers. And they go through and they come to this new land and overwhelmingly everybody has the same feeling, that it looks familiar, but it's unbelievably, undescribably beautiful. Uh, the mountains look like the mountains that were in Narnia, but they're higher and they're more grand and they're uh, beautiful. The sun is brighter and warms the skin without burning, that the air is cleaner, that the blue... The blueness of the sky is a blue um, that, that far exceeds what they remember a blue sky looking like. That the flowers and rocks even have like a weight uh, 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 about them, um, uh, an intentionality about them that's, that's weird. But they, they love it. They think it's beautiful, but it keeps reminding them of Narnia. And then the unicorn, this is where the unicorns come in. The unicorn summed it up. And this is what's written. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed, and then he cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for my whole life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that sometimes it looked a little like this. Um, that one day, when Christ comes back and God makes good on the promise of completing the good work and restoring all of creation. That's going to be like our experience. Um, there's a reason when we're all at the ocean and we all think it's beautiful, regardless of what time period you're from in history or what nation you're from, uh, being overwhelmed by creation. That there's something good there because it was created by a good creator, and we're going to get to enjoy that. Um, I'll close with the very last paragraph from the very last page in that book. It says this, as he spoke, that's Aslan, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all the adventures in Narnia have been the cover and title page now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and ever, in which every chapter is better than the chapter before it. Um, 
we're told that, that when we get to be in the presence of God and Christ and enjoy uh, this perfected creation, that it lasts forever, which makes whatever we're dealing with today or tomorrow um, much smaller, put into a real perspective. When I think on the difficulty of life and how hard life can be, and then I reflect on, on Christ and the hope that we have there, the hope of today and the hope for tomorrow, it's my, our hearts turn to worship. It, 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 takes, it turns mourning into laughing and praise. Um, and that's our hope. That's the hope that we, we have promised in Christ. I know sometimes when I hear it, I go, it's too grand and good to be true. But the, the new covenant language, the writing that we have in, in Hebrews, the, the prophecy in Jeremiah, they're, the words that are used are not light. Um, uh, they, are, they are heavy words of finality of what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross and the hope that we have for today and for tomorrow. Um, so today as we go out, um, I hope that we all think about that and meditate on that, that what we get in Jesus was not the sixth covenant that happened to work out, but this, is, this was the covenant, this was the thing that God was planning to do from the very beginning. And, and Jesus is the person that we get to see at the very end of this. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for um, the good news of what you've done for us in your covenant, in your new covenant, in your better covenant. Um, doing what we couldn't do for ourselves. Oof. Father, you're so good. There's such a deep hope here. I, I pray that your spirit is working in our hearts now to help us to grasp even a part of that. Um, so that we're transformed by that truth. Father, if we, if we understand that, how can we live tomorrow like we did yesterday? Um, we thank you for that hope. We thank you for the promises that don't depend on us, um, that depend solely on you, Jesus, and your goodness and your grace and mercy. Uh, we love you and we thank you for this good news.